0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Church of God Network podcast. My name is Daniel Russo. I'm board chairman of Church of God Network. And on today's episode, I'm going to be sitting down with Bob Usey. Bob Usey is a longtime friend. In fact, he's known me since I was three years old. So about as long term of a friend as I could possibly have. He's an addiction counselor, at least a retired addiction counselor, and has a lot of experience on the topic we're about to discuss today. And that topic is addiction, compulsivity, and sin in the Christian life. Bob, I'm going to get him to talk about his professional background, I'm going to get him to talk about his personal experience on the subject, and of course his professional experience and his insight into addiction and compulsivity and how it relates to really every person, not just your cliche examples of an alcoholic or someone who's abusing substances. Of course, they fall into this category as well, but really we're going to talk today about the universality of addiction and compulsivity in the human experience. We hope you get a lot of value out of today's episode, and we hope you enjoy well, thanks for joining us, Bob. I appreciate you being sure. on the podcast. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. We actually have known each other quite a long time. Were, were you Sorry. in Were you in Westchester when my family first moved up? Yeah. Yeah. So you've so you've known me since I was three years old. <laughs> I was in Yorktown
1: when your family moved to Yorktown.
0: Yeah, that's wild. So for everyone listening, uh, Bob and I are members of the same congregation in New York. We've known each other for a long time. Um, one of the reasons why he's on this podcast is we tend to have not only him and I, but him and my father, the different people in the congregation tend to have these uh, conversations related specifically to addiction, compulsivity, sin, things of that nature, because um, they're they're right within Bob's wheelhouse. And, and I thought it was good that we have him on the podcast and talk about this uh, topic, because I actually don't hear this talked about much at all in the Church of God. Uh, Bob, I don't know if you were able to listen to it, but, uh, we featured a, a sermon by Rick Stafford, um, just after we launched about addiction, uh, and he's a, a minister in LCG and it was actually quite good. Um, so if you haven't been able to listen to that, I, I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah. I hadn't, hadn't
0: heard that. Yeah. But again, welcome. Uh, Bob, would you mind giving us a little bit about your professional background?
1: Uh, I worked since 1988 in the field of addiction. Um, I started out as a, actually somebody heard me speak someplace and invited me to send my resume to a program for United Hospital, which I didn't do, and then he called me again. And then he ended up, uh, I was in a plumber's electrician unit, and he called me because things got slow in the union. My dad was a business agent all that. You don't jump the line for family, so he called me in the middle of the summer, actually early, beginning of summer, I wasn't working, And he he had no credentials. I went down there, and I worked with him. And he really liked me. Three years later, I was the director. And then I ended up, I worked there 10 years. We probably had, we had what was considered the best day rehab program in Westchester. We had, uh, it was full service. We had a GED track. We had a life skills track. You get a lot of people in outpatient treatment, inpatient treatment who have been in prison. And we had a woman from Boise who taught them how to write resumes and could actually help them fill in these gaps in some way that was productive. Um, we also had, at a time when nobody had them, some company donated six computers. So the patients would come when I opened up at seven in the morning, want to get on the computer. I didn't have a computer in my office, we had computers in a the room they could use and they were learning how to write resumes on them. So it was a, it was a really unique program. And it was, we had a family of origin piece we had an abuse abandonment. We had the only trauma track in the county. So we got a lot of people who came to us who could not get sober because when they got sober and they started to become, you know, open, uh, they felt frightened and vulnerable and uh, relapsed, you know, kind of like taking away somebody's dominant defense mechanism, which is their drinking and drugging after a while can make them feel, you know, awful, like little children and they're lost and... But we knew that. We knew there were a lot of people who would not get sober if their primary trauma or family of origin issue wasn't addressed. And that was an educational process. And then it was an experiential process. And that was like a six-month process with them. So I did that for 10 years. And then I got recruited at Columbia, New York, Presbyterian by Dr. Straightener. And we opened up the only program in the country of its kind. It was an amenities unit. Attracting nothing but celebrities, we had five billionaires in the first year, and we had uh, we had everybody. We had people from Saturday Night Live, we had Academy Award winners, we had uh, we had doctors who patented famous, very prolific procedures. So I was there for twenty, almost twenty four years, and I retired in January. So that's awesome. how I got into it. It was something that I just, you know, out of my own experience in the past, I, I was interested in addiction. And had my own, you know, personal experience with it and felt that it had some skills that could be useful that I'd learned along the way. And, uh, I enjoyed it and it was, it was a good field to be in for a while. You're not going to get rich in the field, but you'll mm-hmm. make a living there.
0: Yeah. So you did uh, one-on-one counseling as well as uh, group sessions, right?
1: Yeah. I, I taught for eight years through uh, both places and I taught, um, group therapy and dynamic group dynamics. I taught relapse prevention, Psychoanalytical institute in Mount Kisco, uh, taught over at Nyack hospital, Rockland council division of alcoholism, and substance abuse, a bunch of places. And um, yeah, I did individual counseling, which is fine, but I loved group counseling and that was my forte. I really was, I could get people very invested, interested, I could find out where people were at and kind of meet them there. And I was always kind of validated for the fact that I could, you know, take 15 unruly patients to get them to sit, take notes, and then come back the next day on time. They liked that. And I think it was just about just a different approach. I think i think generic. Anybody could have done it. You just had to have the right approach to them. Sure. You had to engage them. You had to really, you know, the biggest problem is a lot of people underestimate how bright and how creative people who have a substance use are. First of all, they got to be creative to get their drug of choice every day and to make the excuses, to try to avoid the people that love them or the people they're responsible to. And uh, they're pretty smart. And when you kind of interest them, and I would, I would teach them about the neurophysiology of addiction, I'd make it real simple. I had a great teacher that has saved my life, Dr. Paul D'Amico. So I would teach them about that and they'd, they'd understand it was a disease. And the interesting piece was family. I ran a family program as well. And the family program uh, was two nights a week. And the parents, on the retreat, it was Sundays, actually. The parents were furious. Every time the person said, I'm going to stop, they bought into it. And then the person didn't stop. And they were so betrayed and let down and disappointed. And when I talked to them, I did it on a blackboard. I do it on a blackboard about neurophysiology. One man said to me, this was on the retreat. These were the very wealthy movers and shakers in in our country. And uh, one man said to me, well, you mean my son really meant to stop? He meant it? I said, yeah. I said, but when his son stopped, he went into withdrawal. And, you know, now he's got a conflict between what his head wants to do. He doesn't want to use anymore. And his body, which is now has cellular craving and demands a substance to put the fire out that's going on inside of him. Yeah. The neurological storm. It he calls
0: calls the, the mind uh, Romans 7 in, in a very literal way. Paul talking about the things he knows he he." doesn't want to do he does that's right that's right and uh i know you um you hinted about your your own personal experience with addiction uh would you mind getting into that a little bit
1: yeah i mean i was using substances probably from 12 or 13 not regularly but by the time i was 15 i was smoking pot every day and, you know and then i got the harder drugs later on i went out to california in the 60s lived in hate ashbury and uh and it lived all over the country, up in Boston, and San Francisco, and Berkeley. And it became, you know, part of who I was. It was like, you know, my my purpose every day was to get my substance. And, and I, I, I had some real problems. I'd been in a coma for 10 days, which was the County Medical Center. I think that was 1976 or something. And I remember a doctor sitting across from me. And I guess I came in, I was about 28, and I came in at the same time, Somebody else did. And here I come out of this coma. and My parents are outside, and this neurologist sits down with me, and he says, you know, I want to read your levels from the blood tests that they took when I came in. They were very high, and they were certainly toxic levels. He said, you know, you came in, another kid came after you that night. He died, and you didn't, and you're very lucky, because you really should be dead because your levels were so high certain narcotics and stuff and he was a i could tell he was really well-intentioned he was a very nice man he was talking to me he was sincere i was like he was talking to the person next to me right on my head so i had that experience then i overdosed once uh three times in nine days i woke up in three different hospitals wow and then january 4th 1987 i'm hard-headed i hit a bottom my union was bringing me upstate and of course if you're taking me to a hospital I'm going to bring what I think I need with me in my pocket. Every time we stopped, I would take some of it and end up overdosing in the car 10 minutes from uh, Community General Hospital up in Sullivan County. Wow. And they saved my life again. This time I woke up and I had Dr. D'Amico, who was a genius. He wrote the book, Massive Myths with Simple Solutions. He made five films about addiction. He was a wonderful guy and he was a genius. In fact, you know, his rehab, his hospital, People came from all over the country to go there, and uh, he didn't care how sick I was. I mean, I was in bed, I was there a month, but he made them wheel me around in a wheelchair after two weeks to go to his lectures, and his lectures were fascinating, and after that I went to, every Friday him and I met, and I'd go sit in his lectures, and I used to bring people to them, but he's still, in my opinion, he is still the example for cutting-edge treatment for addiction. He was so far ahead of his time. That book, Massive Myths with Simple Solution, debunks every single viewpoint on addiction that's fraudulent. And he explains it and he breaks it down so a five-year-old can understand it. And he was a very charismatic guy. And and he, of course, ran afoul of all the orthodoxy because he was outspoken about it. He had very strong moral opinions. He had a church in his home. Um, He didn't believe that, you know, like he'd get women you know, that had five, six abortions, and he would say to him, you know, this is immoral. And the hospital got very upset about that. And this is back in 1987. Mm-hmm. But he made so much money for the hospital, but they did everything they could to destroy him. Eventually, he got blackballed out of the field, and he taught for a while, and then he got Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. And about nine years ago, he called me up, and I went up to his house, and all these people from the Scandinavian countries, of Finland, Norway, I think Sweden, and he had sent me his new research, and apparently they had implemented his, you know, paradigm for treatment all throughout these countries. And There was a lo- whole string of rehabs that were based on his model. And his model, from the minute you walked in the door, every interaction was therapeutic to the day you left. Yeah. And uh, it was very successful. And I was really happy to see he was really happy that his information, which had been disseminated all over the world, had really been used to create a model like the program he created. He had a detox and a rehab. And, and I was in the hospital a month, 29 days. And in that time, I got sicker than I've ever been in my life. I lost 24 pounds in two and a half weeks. I was 136 pounds. And I, was, I didn't sleep. You know, I tell people this. It's not a record. Anybody who's been in prison can tell you. If you come off methadone, you don't sleep for months. I didn't sleep for 57 days. Ish. You know, very worried because I was 38. My blood pressure would get very high. And I, I was still you know, I was working out and doing things like that most of my life. And they said uh, one night, they said, we're going to give you some medication. You're going to sleep. I'll never forget it. This is when I went to the rehab. And I thought, wow, because I'd wake up, I'd be up all night. You know, when, you know, when your brain is spinning all day and you can't sleep, you it's just a, a difficult, rapacious kind of process, it's rather difficult But before that, I had an experience, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But they gave me a ton of medication, nothing I would want to take. But And I went in my room at 11 o'clock. They wheeled me in a wheelchair. And I was always in a room by myself because they couldn't put me with people because I'd be up all night. And uh, I fell asleep. And I woke up. I went, wow. It was like blacking out. I went, wow. I thought I slept through the night. So I got myself out, wheeled myself out. The nurse was right outside my door. And it was like, I think it's 5 in the morning. It was 11.20. I slept for 20 minutes. <laughs> and that's the way my sleep came back. 20 minutes, a half an hour, 45 minutes. What I did at a year sober when I was living somewhere else, I was out of the hospital for a long time and out of the rehab. I started walking at the track. I'd go to the track in Yonkers. I like, I'd fall asleep for an hour at 11 o'clock. Then I'd go to the track, say 12 or 1, and I'd walk around the track. Winter, summer, I didn't care what it was. I'd wear a car hard in the winter, and I started jogging around it. And I started running around, and I started working out at home. And I come back and get another hour sleep. So I was getting two, three hours sleep a night. Went back to work in the union I was in, which was rigorous work. And I was doing okay. Um, you know, got in really great shape from that. And I also understood, for me, the key to not sleeping at night was in the rehab, was not to sit there and think I should be sleeping, I should be sleeping. I yeah. said to myself, I'm never going to get another opportunity to spend this much time rebuilding myself, remaking myself what do I really want to do? So they brought my guitar up, uh, my brother went my guitar, they brought up all the books that I wanted to read. I read every, every author I ever wanted to read and I was the only patient in the rehab. Rehab was 75 patients and they had a new edition on and it was 100 patients. It was a big place. It was right in Yorktown. It was Serenity Hill. Oh, okay. You know, the Japanese bought it, became a country club and now it's just a wreck. But I would go into, they, I was the only patient they'd let go into the day room in the middle of the night they gave me permission. They'd wheel me in there, and I'd go in there, and I'd either read or play my guitar, or I would, uh, I'd watch Ben Casey. But every night I had stuff to do.
0: Is so, that where you um? Is is that where you happen to be exposed to the to the church?
1: Actually, the church. When I got out of there, uh, a friend of mine, who who I got, I helped get in treatment. Now he was in my union, and some people said, "Would you help him out?" And I said, "I I can't get him sober, but I'll bring him to meetings." But we sent him to Arms Acres or someplace, and he said to me one day, we were going to meetings together, he said, do you have any spiritual literature? It's a broad kind of category, but <laughs> home, I looked through my stuff and I found, and I had no idea how it got there, no idea, it came out of fears, few years ago, found Mystery of the Ages. So I didn't even read it, I just handed it to him, I said, I said, try this out, George. And about a week later he came to me, he goes, you know what this says? He said, I hope you don't mind, but I highlighted some things. And I opened the book, and he had highlighted in orange. man was made for a relationship with his creator. And I said, give me my book back. And I took the <laughs> book back, and I started reading yeah. it. And then I started – I spoke to Steve Botha. I called different – you know, the church. I got different ministers, and I began to converse with them, and then they invited me to come to church, and that was, that was it. But long before I ever did that, I watched Mr. Armstrong in 1969 – probably 68, 69 in Garnet's California, in California to watch him on Sunday nights. And I was fascinated by him. I didn't know what he was talking about. I liked when he talked about revelation, either one of them, but I was absolutely fascinated. There's something very charismatic and compelling about him. I enjoyed listening to him.
0: So that's interesting. Actually, I won't get to it now. I have a quote by Carl Jung. I wanted to run past you, which is very similar to that uh, little snippet from mystery of the ages, but for people who are listening or watching, or watching and wondering, uh, you know, maybe they're listening and going, well, I'm not addicted to narcotics or alcohol or a substance of, of any sort. Um, how does this apply to me? I mean, you and I have talked about this a bunch. We talk about it in, uh, at church quite a bit. But can you explain sort of the or, or talk about the, the universality of, of addiction and compulsivity and how that works?
1: The crisis in our country, I want to know our country is compulsivity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care what it is. We're compulsive people. Uh, it could be your iPhone. It could be the internet. It could be alcohol. It could be gambling. It could be pornography. And the best example I can give this is when it really hit me it was many years ago when one of my kids was graduating from high school. I drove by the school and I thought, "Let me go and see what's going on." It was one of those last days of school when you say goodbye to people. It's a couple of hours, and the kids were coming out. Hundreds of kids were coming out. Every kid had his head down and was looking at his cell phone. And I thought, well, wow. What is so important that on this last day of school, they're not more involved with their friends? What, you know, who was calling? The yeah. president was calling? What was going on? It was so yeah. important. And there it's
0: also, case. it's, it's also, sure. it, it could be, right, anger, responses to people. I mean, it's the whole, I'd imagine the, the you talk about um Perfectionism,
1: comp. Com- 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 People have a degree to be a need to be right. That's compulsivity. Yep. Uh, Workaholism is a compulsivity. Need for relationships. People, you know, there's a million, million different ways.
0: Yeah. And I think the average person maybe doesn't view those things as a compulsivity or an addiction because uh, it doesn't. not it, harmful. Yeah. It doesn't. And it won't literally kill you. Right. Huh. And, and I think maybe the uh because one of the common experiences in addiction is also hitting hitting bottom right and so i think a lot of those those compulsivities or addictions probably do result in hitting bottom at some point it's maybe yes. it's a social interaction or your family starts to fall apart or, or you have a relationship with a child that, that sours or a spouse that gets worse. And I don't know if people see those moments as bottom. They just maybe see them as well. That's what happens in marriage or something, or maybe they, they brush it off in the church rather than seeing it as part of a, a continuum of addiction and compulsivity and sin. I mean, that's, that's the, the root of it.
1: Well, you know, I guess, you know, the interesting piece about it is that um, I think most people have some compulsivity. They don't recognize as such. But they, they call used to call the old days the codependent, the wife, spouse, parent, brother, sister, of the alcoholic, the co-alcoholic, because they had a lot of the attitudes and behaviors. And uh, the difference between, you know, an alcoholic and the wife of an alcoholic is the wife of the alcoholic, um, you know, she believes she can fix her husband, she's going to be fine. But of course, she's given up so much of her life. And so much of her consciousness has been taken up by concerns, worry, you know, will he bring the money home for the paycheck. And they get into Al Anon, and they have a very different way of working the same 12 steps. It's the same 12 steps, except the word alcohol is taken as step one. Yeah. We admit it we're powerless over alcohol or drugs, that's the first step. Their first step is we admit it we're powerless over the alcohol. What happens to them is very slow process going through the steps because it's not life threatening. But boy, it ruins their lives. I've mm-hmm. seen I've seen people I, I saw a lot of people in my private practice and I've seen people marry an alcoholic three times. In spite of being in treatment and knowing better, it's just it's mystification. They just, yeah. oh, this person loves me, he's different, you know. And then he gets behind the wheel of the car drinking and they say, Well, maybe you shouldn't be driving. And he doesn't pay any attention to that. And a couple of those, and a few months later, you're saying, well, what do you think? And they finally say, might be a problem. Does this feel familiar? They call it reification mm-hmm. therapy. They're repeating a pattern over and over again.
0: And it's, it seems like so so many of these addictive or, or compulsive dynamics uh, show themselves in the family dynamic that, you know, you might maybe one person is uh, abusing substances, but, but let's say there isn't. I mean, I, I know people who... Um, and again, this isn't, it's, it might be confusing to some people to, to say it in this way, but people who are addicted to, or they always react with jealousy in a relationship, or they're always fearful that the person they're with is going to leave them because they've experienced abandonment uh, growing up. Those are, I don't know if they fall into an addictive category, but they're, they're ways that our minds are wired to go to a certain place. And um, it just seems like the, the full spectrum of addiction uh, is much wider than people uh, realize. And I, I like the point you, you brought up about how the um, the members, very often the members of a household where there is someone who is addicted to a substance have are just as much addicts just to different things.
1: Well, you know, it's very much systems theory. Mm-hmm. And it's so exact, it's, it's hilarious. You get an alcoholic family, you get an alcoholic, husband's an alcoholic, the wife's codependent, they get three kids and you will find the same exact roles in that family. We have a you'll have a, a family hero who's an overachiever, you'll have a mascot who's always getting in trouble. And it's all to distract each one of them from the conflict that's going on between mom and dad that may have been brought about long before the alcoholism. Mm-hmm. But you see that's why Bradshaw's work was so incredibly on target in the eighties. You know, his film Healing the Shame That Binds You is just a wonderful Film this book. That
0: book is terrific. I highly recommend to anyone listening. Uh, John Bradshaw, she, pretty much my life. pretty much any anything by by John Bradshaw. It, I mean it. I don't know if I if I spoke with you after, but I, I was on a actually a Church of God Network trip and, and happened to bring um, Healing the Shame, and yeah. and read that and and thought because a lot of his work is around family dynamics, and I thought, well, you know, like, am I really shame based? I don't feel like I am. I have. I mean, we've talked. I, that I consider myself an addict in a number of different ways that might not be substances, but I I fully see myself through that lens. And I think most people should, but I remember reading the book and realizing that I actually absolutely was shame based in a number of areas. And you don't until someone puts the, the language and the verbiage behind explaining dynamics, you just, you just don't see it.
1: Well, that was the thing that patients liked most because for me, I did a whole thing on shame and the family dynamics. We do that for weeks. And I would kind of explain to them that, look, take these words, shame and guilt, and we're going to give a new definition. Guilt is I made a mistake. I did something wrong. I didn't do something I should have done. That's about your behavior. Shame is I'm inherently flawed. I am a mistake. It's more about your very being. It's a feeling of inadequacy. And all the, And I met John Bradshaw, and I trained with him for a while, and everybody I ever met that I admired in the field says the same thing. The core of addiction is a sense of shame. And it starts long before you have any control over it. You get shame from your primary caregivers, mom, dad, your whoever raised you, your brother, sister, or you can get it from you can get it from your church. I went to church as a kid and every Sunday was fire and brimstone. I thought at yeah. nine years old, I thought I'm condemned to hell. I'm never gonna make it. You can get it from your peers. You get it from a variety of places.
0: Yeah. And it's and, so common and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like you know, you don't have to be a you know, there are a lot of people who, who struggle very consistently with self esteem issues or self loathing. I, I consider myself uh to not be someone who falls into that category, but I I have recognized that I absolutely still am shame based and, and you can also be shame based in certain areas yeah not others, correct?
1: Yeah. You know what I found really interesting? Here I am working at this rehab and every I mean we had we had um I won't mention names, but we had the head of largest oil producing country in the world and he uh was underneath the prince. And we had, we had, you know, princes and we had Moroccan princesses. And we had a lot of different people. We had people just under heads of state. We had people, we had a man who came who was picked for a cabinet position by Bush. We got a guy who was one of the nicest gentlemen I ever. Met. He was seven years old. He was an alcoholic, but he did not drink before three o'clock. So he struggled. He was running the largest corporation in America. And I won't mention it because you know who he was, but he, um, was a billionaire. And the day I met him, he was on the board of three hospitals. My boss said to me, Bob, this is your patient. And on this unit, there are only five beds there and there are big screen TVs and all that stuff and gourmet chefs. And so half the patients were mine mm-hmm. on any given day, plus I had other patients. And he says, if this doesn't work out, he said, we're, we're, we're screwed and I'm going to hang you out to try. So this guy, I met him, really nice man. And I find that He's a billionaire. And he's on all these boards. And he's been the head of other big companies. And it was so interesting. I told him about shame. And one day, he got this. Uh, it was his birthday. He'd been with us a month. And he got. we had 8 tracks, and, and you know, DVD players there on the unit. You could play it in your room. And he had an 8-track. This is like 2001. And 8-track tape. So he put the tape in there. I want to show you something. I was going home. It was 4 o'clock. I want you to see this. And it was every well-known political leader, both parties, wishing him happy birthday with his sister. Happy birthday, so-and-so. Happy birthday, so-and-so. And the last one was George W. Bush. Happy birthday, so-and-so. So I'm walking out, and I said, wow, it's pretty impressive. And I get out to my car, and I said, wait, I got to go back and talk to him. So I said, because I thought, you know what? I know who this guy is. I know how successful he is. First of all, he's a wonderful gentleman. I understand. And he came from nothing. He made, he made his money. Nobody gave it to him.
2: Yeah.
1: And he's what I call dynamic, assertive. He leads because he's smarter than most people, and you want to follow him. He has good ideas. But the point is, he grew up in a family where his father was a, an addict from World War II, never got off of it, amputee, and he never had a childhood. He had his brother. He said, i come home, and my mom would say, shh, your father's sleeping at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so go back out and play, you know. So you never – he's a parentified child. Yeah. So I come back after looking at the tape, and I go back, and I say, can I ask you a question? What motivated you to show me that particular video? He looked at me and I said, was it, you wanted me to know who you were? And he looked at me and he gave a big sigh. He goes, you know, you're absolutely right. And I said, well, I know, you know, I said, not only do I know who you are, but know that you're a pretty genuine authentic person who is underneath it is a great person. But I don't think you know that yet because you needed to impress me with that, you know, that H and I, the whole month I worked with him, I knew all the stuff about him. Yeah. But he still had that button in him that said, wait a minute, I want him to know how important I am. And I said, that's the shame button. And he understood it immediately. In fact, after that, I treated a uh, couple of his sons. And they all went to Wharton Business School in Yale and all that. But you know what he was – I treated his wife. They're really, really – he, he gave me a very uh, – was an educational viewpoint on people who are successful. Because when we started getting I thought we were going to get a bunch of entitled people. You know, who are going to be very arrogant? They weren't. They just weren't. He wasn't. It's, it's so, his guy had everything you could have, possibly want. Everything homes all over the world. You know, his final his final remark to me, which kind of made me very envious. I said, "Is there anything that you you regret in your life?" And he said, "I regret that I don't have another hundred million dollars to leave my children." Yeah, he had sixteen grandkids at that time. So,
0: the uh, it, the amazing thing too is you you, you touch on the you know you wanted me he wanted you to know who he was yes. that the that all the success still hadn't uh satiated that pride and and the more i live and the more i encounter things and the more i find parts of myself that i don't like the more it all comes back to pride and it sounds trite because i think everyone says it but i uh remember a a, a sermon from from Gary Petty that i listened to a while ago and he mentioned that uh we all, every person, right, and this obviously dates back to Satan and his rebellion. But oh, yeah. as a, as a, as a, out, as an outgrowth of that, every person, every human being, thinks they are a god, a small, small G god, and everything that hits against that pride, right, that that knocks you down, that insults you, that makes you feel lesser, goes against the the pride of this god. And a god can't be anything less than perfect. So it's all these things we do to try to. You know, build up our own, um, uh, build up our pride, but or think, think that think that we're better, whatever it is. Comparing ourselves to others, whatever the thing is. I mean, I, I've realized that about about myself how much I, my how much my emotional state depends on how well I think I'm doing, and that's an illusion. <laughs> uh, and so contrary to well, you know, what God wants Pascal, from us,
1: Pascal called it the God size hole, and that's the thing that I always see that no matter how successful and you. Were, Going to talk about Carl Young, you know, Carl Young, correspondent with Bill Wilson, and he quoted, I believe it was the psalm where he talked about the heart, the deer panting for a drink of water. He said the alcohol thirst for a relationship with God or something greater than himself. So after have to work with Roland, who you know got sober for a while and then relapsed. And Carl Young had the decency when Roland said to him, you know, okay, what do we do now? He said, well, I can't help you. And Roland was crestfallen. You know, what do you mean you can't help me? You're the best psychiatric mind in the world. Mm-hmm. He said, I've seen alcoholics like you, you're the, the hopeless variety. I can't help you. He said, You never yeah. ever seen anybody like me get well? And Carl Young said, No, I didn't say that. He said, I can't help you. What you need is a vital spiritual experience, and I can't bring it about.
0: And that person was the uh, eventual was founder Roland. of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right?
1: No, 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 no. Roland was a member. It was a B&W, member. Dr. Bob, Jim B., and uh, another guy I forgot. It was four original, but Bill and Bob, and Roland was a friend of Libby who helped Bill get sober and then relapsed and later died, and uh, Roland came in contact with AA and okay. stayed sober for a while, but he never really engaged in the principles and never really had any long-term sobriety, okay. but he was, he was a member in the early days, at he was a very, very wealthy man, kind of went his own way.
0: I remember reading that story very recently, like those ex- that exact story, and and I guess they they cited it as like an
1: hazard. yeah,
0: like an early an early um, story uh, that that links uh, Young to Alcoholics Anonymous in some way. I assumed it was the founder, but I guess not. Um, the The quote I actually have, which which is a, is a great time to read it. Uh, so it's from Young regarding one of his patients. So I'm assuming it's the same person. Uh, his great. Yeah, his craving for alcohol was the equivalent of the spiritual thirst of our being uh, of our being for wholeness, expressed as the union with God. So that's, and I feel like a lot of people, even in the Church of God, ministers that I that I respect have have recognized that all sin, right, addiction, compulsivity, sin in general, all sin, and all the different things we yearn for that aren't God uh, are our attempt at uh, creating a pale substitute for that God's sure. toll yeah. in, in us.
1: I realized that many years ago that I'd been looking, I was, I was in Scientology in the sixties. I certainly took a lot of acid, That I was looking for that connection somehow. Yep. And it, it, it's not brought about, but are just not going to find it in any of those places. It doesn't exist that way. It doesn't happen that way.
0: The, the amazing thing that I heard too was uh, that that hole, that God sized hole in each one of us, it's actually never going to be filled until we're that's spirit right. until we're spirit. That's and that's a, that's a powerful recognition and, and revelation of sorts, but it's also, I don't want to say scary, but it's like, it's just, there's nothing you could do, right? It's about, I think it's built that way because it's made to have us continually yearn for God and struggle against that part of ourselves like to make sure that we're trying to fill that hole with with God and not other things until we die. And then we're finally, that wholeness is only achieved when we're resurrected.
1: I always think of Hebrews when they talk about all the, the great men of the Bible who were pilgrims, you know, foreigners. It was like, you know, they got a shoe that was never going to fit them. And I, when my kids got older, I said, you know, this life is not going to fit. Just it's not going to be what you think it is. It's not going to mm-hmm. fit. And I'm here to tell you to seventy two years it's not gonna fit. That empty space, you can say you can, you know, there's some things that will take away some of it,
0: but you distract. Yeah.
1: The things of this world, you know, you get to a point when you get to be as old design where you really stop desiring anything but your relationship with God because there's God and not God and everything else is not God. And it's not fulfilling and it's not gonna last and it's not you know, there's things God put give us that were good certain institutions and stuff, but as far as, you know, particularly with the, with the successful wealthy people, um, I mean, I'm not saying they're chasing it. Some of them just, you know, like the doctor, these two doctors that patented a very famous procedure, they just kind of fell into it. They were geniuses. But they, um, you know, they do all the things that those people do. You know, now you're in a competitive race of more of everything. You know, your boat, you're placing France and this, that, and the other thing, and it's a very rare person that doesn't get drawn into that.
0: Yeah. We seem to have this. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. We seem to have this preoccupation with happiness or oh, yeah. or feeling a certain way. And um, if the last decade of my life, which is really like the first decade of adulthood for me, has taught me anything, is that that's a ridiculous goal to shoot for. This, this idea that you're just constantly happy and nothing's wrong. It's just, we have this illusion uh, of how life is supposed to be. And, you know, I think much of the compulsivity and addiction and trying to navigate this world it results in those different things, whether it is addictions to substances or to the idea of finding a spouse. I, I know I, I see that phenomenon a lot amongst young people in the church that there's this over-focus on finding a spouse and marriage is great. Like it's a godly institution, but anything that that we put as a substitute uh or even just not even as a substitute, but we our actions show we put in a higher position the hierarchy in yes, our pursuit of God is problematic and and life is just life is exhausting and super tough and it's and it's going it's worse if we're involved in all these destructive addictions where we're trying to find substitutes for that god-sized hole, but even if we are following God by and large day in and day out. We're not promised it's going to be easy. I mean, it's, it's, I think my dad said the other day, it says, pick up your cross and follow me. You don't, you, right. don't you don't get her. The cross doesn't get removed.
1: <laughs> you know what? Scott Peck, the beginning of his books, his life's difficult. Later on, he says, life's a drizzle of small problems, I think. And you have to remember where we came from chronologically. I grew up in the, in the you know, fifties on, on fairy tales, mm-hmm. which always had a happy ending. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the benchmark and all of it was nonsense. So most people, if you ask them what they want, they say they want to be happy. As though that was some permanent emotional state you could grab and hold on to and keep with you on a regular basis, every day, all day. And that's just so ridiculous. It's not possible. And and if you, you know, I always think about, um, I I think it's in Proverbs where Solomon says, suffering opens the heart. That, you know, suffering has a purpose. It makes us more understanding, more compassionate. We draw closer to others. We can then be there for others' suffering. You know, it's yeah. like, that's one of the problems with Alcoholics Anonymous, as they say, happy, joyous, and free. And it's almost like, uh, I call it toxic positivity. It's, you know, that, that's, that's an illusion, you know, and it's, yeah. it's silly. You no, know, life is up, has ups and downs. It's a struggle a lot of the time, because this is not God's world. This is Satan's world. He's prince of the power of the air. And this is not the way it it's supposed to be now, but it wasn't the way it was intended.
0: Yeah, and also just for people listening, uh, Scott Peck, "The Road Less Traveled, and other books of uh, by him, highly yeah. recommend those. I, I listened to um, "People of the Lie." People of the lie, too,
1: different drum are all fantastic. Not too,
0: not too long ago, a very impactful book. Um, yeah, the the interesting thing too is is when when you're in those states uh, where you're it is a down point in life for whatever reason, whether it's, uh, something happened, it's a tragedy, whether it's just, you know, I guess cyclical or, or, uh, hormonal, maybe whatever it is you, at least I feel like if you, if you take a step back and think about what's going on in your own mind, at least I've come to the conclusion how, um, mentally and emotionally weak I am in terms of the, all the things that, that, that motivate, that come out when you're in those states. I've been trying to fast, um, once a month, uh, Jonathan Reedy gave that message a while back about, uh, the spirit, various spiritual tools. And he mentioned fasting. So I've been trying to do that. And even something as small as taking away food, uh, yeah. for a day, yeah. it puts you in a certain mental state and it brings certain things to light, which is, which is interesting. But when you get a, a major, uh, crisis in your life or a depressive state, you know, I've, I've realized how much, a lot of what motivates me is this fear that I won't get something I think I want.
1: Well, you know what? The most profound statement I ever heard came from eight years ago from a guy in alcoholics Anonymous. We're afraid of not getting what we want and losing what we have.
2: Yeah. That's the
1: core self-centered fear. That's the core of everything. That fear.
0: And it's, and it's, I think that's why, uh, I mean, scripture is replete with the admonitions to focus on the kingdom, to not love anything else before, before God, because I I do, I mean, I'm not necessarily someone who has a lot of fears that go around in his head often, but I, but there sometimes like, depending on what's going on in life, you fear of losing a loved one or a situation or by and large with me, it's not getting something that I want. And I've come to intellectually at least understand that, as long as I'm pursuing my conversion relationship with God, all things work together for good. So even though I might be going through something terrible or maybe a bad event's going to happen to me or my family in my life, God very well could be using that to get me or the other people in my life to where we need to be character wise, that that might be the catalyst that changes who we are to help us be that stone that he needs to fit a very specific place in his kingdom. Um, and that's a, well, that's, know, go ahead.
1: The sermon on James, counted all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That really was very helpful to me because, you know, I've always thought that in recovery that God doesn't waste a step. And that often my plan and his plan are very different, but his plan works out better than I expect. Yeah. <laughs> it, yep. it, it just takes me a while to accept it, to see it, you know, but I look at it that way that this is for, you know, some growth and change in me that God sees that needs to happen. I don't always see it. Um, first of all, I don't have a choice. You know, I have no choice in it. Yeah. I, I can resist all I want. It's not going to do I'm just going to be miserable. I need to surrender to that process, let yeah. myself, you know, fully engage in it. But that's not an easy thing to do, letting go like no. that.
0: No, I was, I was just talking to someone about that phenomenon. Uh, I know intellectually that that is what is called for. I, I think I've experienced moments like that, but it is super difficult. Yes. I'm still yes. working on that surrender uh, to God aspect of things. I, I do not pretend to know exactly what that entails or how to do it. Um, but I think, like you said, part of it is that recognition that his plan is the one that works out for the best, not ours. Because a lot of it for me is, well, I have these things that I want. In my life right and maybe they're not even they're not even bad things they're not materialistic they're just yeah, things yeah. That, that i that i want and i feel like they're good to want but I, I often try to take a step back and go well if i don't get that but i'm still going through the process of conversion and god gets me where he needs me to be at the end that's a win what what makes yeah. me what makes me it think what makes me think that the thing that i want is going to do more to make me happy than what God wants for me. That's that, that's that odd dynamic where we think the thing, and it goes back to that feeling, I, I think that the inherent uh, a belief, sub, subconscious belief that we're all gods is that we think we know what's going to bring us happiness more than God does. It's firmly ingrained in who we are. And that's a big part of what we need to be shedding is that idea that we know best. We know what's going to make us happy. Uh, why isn't God giving me X thing?
1: Yeah, if we can maintain some kind of, you know, certainty and, and control over things, yeah. it feels great. But the reality is, really powerless over everything. The only thing I'm not powerless over is my reaction to things, and sometimes I'm even powerless over that.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, it's it's an odd feeling to feel like you're not even really in control of yourself. And we, and I mean, we're, we are accountable when we sin, we're accountable when we, right. we screw up. But to think that we're a bunch of beings that have complete... Un, uh, unfettered uh, ability to just exercise what we think is right or wrong is, is not accurate you know the yeah. science doesn't bear it out uh, no. the scr- scripture doesn't bear it out Romans doesn't bear it out the example of David It's, it's this, I feel like the lack of control is one of the pillars um, the fundamental yes. things in scripture is that you don't have control you barely have control of yourself and very often you don't that's why you need me God speaking obviously
1: well, you know, it's always interesting to me because we we need some kind of certainty. We need to wake up and realize that tomorrow is going to be today. You know, I, I know the roads and I know what to do, but, you know, the second human need seems to be unpredictability slash variety. Because with some certainty, yeah. one thing about addiction is just doing the same thing over and over and over and over, expecting different results, but you're in a rut and you get used to that rut. And after a while, it's just an endurance process. You're just enduring life. You're not living it. Yeah. So, you know, variety is nice, but I think a long time ago, I figured out that the end of the game is not happiness. It's not about happiness. Yeah. And if I judge myself by my mood, I'm going to be miserable. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not happy today. I'm not ecstatic for this brief period, you know. I mean, I think, we're, I think God gives us peace, He gives us contentment, and He gives us, the Holy Spirit gives us insight and understanding. And you start to realize, you know, like where we're placed, what's unrealistic, and what's realistic, and you know, I've had, I've had, I had that breakthrough in the hospital, I had an experience that was very cathartic. And the problem with anything that's what you might call a spiritual awakening is, once you've had one, you want to have other ones.
2: Yeah.
1: And I don't want to go through the process of, of getting near death to have that experience. You yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I could I could identify with that. I mean, it's not maybe not near-death. I haven't had near-death experiences, but you have those experiences where you go, man, I'd really like to learn this, and I'd really like to not make an irrevocable mistake to learn it. I'd like to learn it uh, from God in his mercy, not um, because my life is forever different now. You know what I mean?
1: I mean, God gave me my lowest point when I was in the hospital, and I couldn't move my right side since so the little of the night. It was like I saw a flash of light. It was like, like, I thought I had a stroke or something. Boom. And they knew something was wrong, and I was in the room by myself. I was in the hospital this time. They came in, and next thing you know, they rolled me downstairs. And I hadn't prayed in years. Next next morning, I said, God, I don't know, I don't know if you're there. I didn't really know if there was a God. I just said, please help me. And within a day, I had an experience that was, for me, completely unique. Because while I was in the hospital, I was very physically sick. I and mean, lose. 24 pounds in two weeks. You can't eat. and You want to figure feeding tube, all that stuff. My eyes unfocused. I couldn't read to see none of that stuff. And your brain's going like crazy. Every bone in your body aches. Um, It was like somebody—I remember it was somebody—tapped me on the head, and every bit of fear in my body and in my spirit drained out of me. I didn't get physically better. It was like. A tremendous sense of reassurance was given me where I knew I was going to be okay. I never knew I was going to be okay. Not since I was a kid. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to be okay. I know it. And as soon as the doctor yeah. came to see me that day, Dr. D'Amico, he took a lot of time out for me. He said to me, he could see that my countenance is What's going on? feeling better? I said, no, I still feel terrible. I said, but all the fear, that psychological fear is gone. And what I feel now is, a sense of reassurance. I know I'm going to be fine. So I know you're going to be fine. you hit the lottery? And I said, no. And he said, well, I said, I know, because first of all, I saw myself leaving here, walking out of here, which was what I insisted they let me do. I didn't want to be in a wheelchair, but I had to be in one. And I finally got up, and walked out into a van, and took me to the next place. But that to me was some kind of psychic experience that was a change. And I attribute it to God, but it wasn't in mm. the church then.
0: And that's, that's a, that's an, answered. yeah, that's a, and that's an amazing thing because I think the, what I've come to realize is that the, the faith God talks about is that kind of faith, the faith that it's going to be okay, that, that in the end, God has the, your best interest in mind, and that, and as long as we're pursuing that, uh, the best outcome will happen, that God will bring us where, uh, we need to be. It's not that we have faith that, this outcome we want is going to happen. And as long as we just have enough faith, that outcome is going to happen. It's, I think it's the faith in God's process that as long as we go through this, even if we keep failing and failing and failing, but keep getting back up and going through the process of conversion, that, that you will be fine. Even if maybe some of those failures lead to a very big thing, like a divorce or a death or whatever it is, or, you know, physical impairment as a result of something that the, the faith of, yeah, I know I screwed up. Like I know that I can't do this on my own. I know I, I have work to do with God and that if I just keep at it, it'll be okay in the end. It would, but it's, it's, I was thinking about this the other day. It's odd because many of the things we put in that God sized hole are things that give us very intense, temporary reprieve from the stresses or whatever is, is going on in our minds, and our lives, very big, you know, serotonin boost, whatever it is that, that is powerful and I'll get you through. Or it's that thing that whenever you're either stressed or bored, it's just the default thing you you go into. Um, Or it's the thing you're constantly searching for because that you think that's going to make you whole. When in reality, the, the true things that lead to, the peace that you talk about is a relationship with God, but that doesn't offer the intense immediate serotonin boost. It's like this long-term learned peace and contentment, which until you do it for a long time and learn these hard things that it's not, it's not necessarily there. Um, And I think because people look for these intense emotional experiences, sometimes that can be challenging.
1: Yeah. There's no quick fix. Yeah this, it It's kind of a slow process, and uh, and that, you know, that was, um, for me, it was, it was an experience, but the process was still, it still lasted weeks and weeks and months, and the other thing was, you know, for me, I jump-started my life, every problem I had, and I had a lot of like my driver's license for five years, never got a DWI, I got caught driver insurance and stuff like that, um... At the IRS after me for years. I didn't pay taxes. Every one of those things was corrected in miraculous ways. I went to the Motor Vehicle Bureau, get a license after five years. Now, you know, I'm, I'm going to pay a big fine All that. They gave me a conditional license, and they said, you, you're not eligible for a license for at least a year. Two weeks later, I got a license in the mail.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm trying to be honest. So I go back to Motor Vehicle. I said, you sent me this license. This is a regular license. And they spent an hour looking. it, And they said, no, you're entitled to that. When I went to the IRS, it turned out, because I hadn't filed tax returns in six or seven years, that the contractors I worked for in the uh, plumbing and welding unit had been taking out more money than was needed. So I got back. The IRS has has a rule. They'll go back three years, three months, and three weeks if they owe you anything. After that, don't to pay you. So they said, well... Figured I said, you're entitled to $5,500 from us in overpayment of taxes, but you're not going to get anything from 81 and 82 because I still mm-hmm. have more money coming. Yeah. So I didn't, I expected to owe them money and they owed me money. And I've actually got a big check in the mail. Yeah. And it was just, it was just that kind of thing all the way along. And yeah. I needed that because I was so broken and it was just so shattered in pieces and every challenge, I mean, you know, there's a thing called state-dependent learning, which means that when you learn something in a particular state, it could be intoxication, it could be high. You don't have to be high all the time. It's just a different biochemical process with memory in your brain. When you learn that, the state you learn it in, you can't access that information unless you're in that state. I had a mechanic. I've seen it many times with people who are really good at something got sober a month in the hospital and they get out. Guy's a crackerjack mechanic, he has a uh car place in Rock. And he calls me, he goes, Bob, I don't know whether to turn the wrench to the right or left. If he <laughs> learn that, all and he, he was a guy in service to lifer for, for a while, he was could fix everything from like airplanes to a fan. And he learned it all in this process of drinking, drinking, drinking every day. And I'll tell you what, if you gave him a drink on that day and he said I didn't know whether to turn the wrench to the left or right, he'd be able, he'd know it in an instant. Because that biochemical key, that memory, is that substance connected to it, that mindset. Hmm. That's what state-dependent learning is. And I began to realize there were a lot of things that I could not access. There were a lot of things. I mean, there were a lot of deficiencies, short-term memory loss, a lot of things, besides the sleep problems. And little by little, a lot of it came back, but some of it didn't. To this day, I always had a great memory. If I make an appointment for myself, I will inevitably write it down after I've remembered it say a day later. Oh, it's, let's see. It's a Tuesday, uh, you know, the June 10th, 11 o'clock. I'll put down, you know, Tuesday, June 11th at 10 o'clock. I do it all the time. It's just, it's part of the damage that's been done. There's other areas that I realized sure. that, you know, I can't use substances for long as I did not have long-term consequences, but most of them, I take pretty good care of myself. Most of them are, like I said, irreversible, but you can improve them. That's the good news. Anybody who has an addiction will get better if they stop. They can't help but get better if they stop.
0: Yeah. Along along those lines, um, maybe for, for people, maybe the last thing we could talk about is for people who maybe, like we talked about, don't have uh, uh, an addiction to a substance, but maybe they do have destructive addictions or compulsivities in their life. Uh, Are there things that they can be on the lookout for in terms of, I know we've talked about things like, you know, uh, addiction is the removal of the space between impulse and action. I remember uh, if if that's the correct phrase. So
1: impulse action and the alcoholic or addict does not have the ability to interrupt that. So he doesn't have the power of choice. He goes right from impulse to action.
0: So are there along those lines, like someone who has uh, an addiction or compulsivity toward anger, who doesn't have that, that thought, um, that moment of thought between the impulse to be angry and the expression of it, are there things people can look for in themselves when they're trying to be introspective or they're being reflective that can help them identify these things in their life?
1: I think if you ask yourself, what are the, what are the things that bother me most that I do to myself or other people? And because first you have the beginning of any problems awareness. You have to have your own awareness about it. So you can spot it coming up again. And I think what happens is as you spot it goes then you know then it gets to the point where you 're actually able to realize i 'm about to do that, and now you have the power to intervene Then, maybe one time out of ten you're going to do that. Yeah. but I think if you ask yourself what are the behaviors that are troubling me or other people that I love around me that bring you know i 'm being told about there 's also process addictions and things like that, and uh that's probably where there's some kind of compulsive behavior, something going on that's, you know, not life-enhancing, life-promoting. It's not, you know, solidifying your relationships. It's really, you know, tearing you down. Some crutch. We all have questions, some kind of crutch somewhere. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks, Bob. I appreciate your time today. It's always fascinating to to talk with you, and it's also always very helpful personally, regardless of what I'm going through at the time. Um, so yeah just thank thank you for coming on I appreciate your insight